The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. And a bit humbled and nervous to begin this new series as we look at the book of Daniel, the 12 chapters of Daniel. And it is a book, it is a prophecy, it's one of the prophets that so many people know of, but they don't really know. That we know the stories of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. We know the story of the hand writing on the wall and Daniel being able to interpret uh, the writing on the wall uh, of Daniel in the lion's den. So we know those big stories uh, from being kids in Sunday school. And we, we saw the felt Daniel on the board and the felt lion's who were there, and we, we saw them there, and we thought, ah, and we were told as kids and young adults, dare to be like Daniel. And we walked out, and we're like, I can do this. And within moments, if not days, we had totally failed on that and had to balance it by saying, I can never be like Daniel. It's just a good story, but it can never be real to me. Others have ventured beyond chapter 6 into the prophetic writing part of Daniel and gotten confused of who's the king of the north and the king of the south. What does all of this mean? Ten horns and three get knocked down and a little horn comes in and is there and the God of gods and the this and the that and the ancient of days and all of these things and the Son of Man and I'm confused by it all. And so we don't deal with Daniel much. Either it's just a wonderful moral story about how we should act, or it's a confusing prophetic book in which we can never gain understanding, and so we just skip right over it. But this fall, we're going to go right through it. Each week, we're going to take a different chapter. We'll combine the last two, and so over 11 weeks, we're going to look at this great book uh, of Daniel. And we're going to begin uh, this morning looking at chapter 1. And if you have uh, your Bibles, please uh, turn with me to Daniel chapter 1. And let us ask the Lord's blessing on the reading and hearing of His Word. Let's pray. Father, take now this Your Word and speak powerfully through it to us by Your Spirit and press it upon our hearts and our minds. And would we hear from You today. Humble us so that we might understand. To Christ be the glory. Amen. Daniel chapter 1. This is the very Word of God. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, a good of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. And the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank, and they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. 
Mishael he called Mishach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who were of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king? Then Daniel said to the steward, with whom the, king, the chief of eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days, and let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat at the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days it was seen that they were in better appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. And for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of it. Amen. And so we come to this great book. A book that is written in a time and an event that took place in 605 B.C. when King Nebuchadnezzar had gone now uh, after his destruction of Egypt and was now taken over Jerusalem, the southern kingdom of Judah. And he uh, had taken into captivity after a siege these things and these people. And it spans a life of Daniel that began with Nebuchadnezzar, went through his son Amal-Marduk and his son Belshazzar, and even to Cyrus the Great, the king of Persia. And the structure of this book is very simple. Chapters 1 through 6, major division, chapter 7 through 12. Historic narrative, 1 through 6, 7 through 12, beginning to speak of predictions and prophecy, uh, and to understand that prophecy in this was not so much a predictive prophecy uh, as it was an explanation prophecy of the things that were happening and the things that were to come and to be able to give to the people an understanding uh, of how to discern the times, how to understand the things that were going on. And this was a time period within the life of Israel and the life of the people of Judah, God's people, the church. It was a time of great suffering. It was a time of great sadness and of great confusion. Some of the psalms that were written during this time, like Psalm 137, say, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion. Oh, the willows there we hung, the willows there we, on the willows there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? 
If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem. How they said, lay it bare. Lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. Such pain, such honest beauty and turmoil and torment of a people who were asking this question. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How do we have anything to rejoice in? How do we live this life? How do we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Folks, this book, written so many years ago in a captivity of God's people in this century, 605 before Christ, has resonated throughout all of history. That Martin Luther, in the days when he wrote the book, The Babylonian Captivity of the Church, saw that the church again had been taken captive by culture and religion. And he was asking the questions, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? That today we stand in the same way. We don't face a Babylon in the same way. Our children uh, aren't being smashed against rocks. Our daughters are not being uh, raped. Uh, our older people are not being murdered. Our young, bright uh, people are not being deported out and taken and reprogrammed by the culture in the same way, but yet we're in a similar place of Babylon, of saying this isn't our home. This isn't our true nation. This isn't our true place. We are sojourners and foreigners and exiles and aliens. Now it's a nice place. We're exiled to Hilton Head in the Low Country. There could be worse places to be exiled. But do not let that confuse you. You are in exile. This is not your home if you are a follower of Christ. And if you are here today and you don't follow Christ, let me tell you this. There's something so much greater available for you through Christ. A true home. A true land. A true citizenship. A true hope that transcends all of this that's given to us as good as this is it does get better. And so we ask the question, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Well, the first thing I would say as we approach this series and we look at it and we are calling it this uncompromising faith, uh, that Daniel had an uncompromising faith, uh, that the other men that he was with had an uncompromising faith, but what we see in the middle of it is there's an uncompromising God who's writing the narrative. That God's purposes are never compromised. That who God is is never compromised. And so we come within that and ask the question, how shall we sing these songs of the Lord in a foreign land? Well, the first thing is this. We have to see God's hand at work in every situation. We have to see and acknowledge God's hand at work in every situation. You have to look at life really through two lenses. The first lens would be the historic narrative lens. 
It would be what you watch on CNBC and on Fox News and on the BBC and on ABC and all. And the historic narrative, the Sunday, uh, the evening newscast would say this, 605 B.C., this just in, Nebuchadnezzar's armies have swept through Egypt and destroyed Egypt and the remnants of that once proud nation state. And they've moved now north and in coming up the Mediterranean rim, they have destroyed after a long siege Jerusalem, the once proud city. And they have taken its walls down to rubble. And they have destroyed the people utterly. There have been carnage and waste and atrocities of war which make today's war seem almost civil. And they've taken the young people, the brightest and the best, and they've deported them to Babylon. And the religion of this country, this great God of Israel and His big temple has been brought to nothing. And all of its unblemished and all of its perfect pieces have been carried off and taken now to be put into the museums of the gods of Babylon in all of the specter and all of the spectacular nature of the culture of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon and the hanging gardens and all that was. That's the evening news. That's the crawl across the bottom. The crawl across the bottom that says today, 15 years ago, two planes flew into the Twin Towers. That a plane went down in Pennsylvania and another into the Pentagon. That the sovereignty of our country was under attack that thousands of our brothers and sisters were killed in that and lives were wrecked and that we are in war and at a time of war. That's what the evening news says. And the evening news says that we should be careful about terrorism, that we should be careful and look out for all these things. That's how we understand history. But if we're ever going to sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land, we also have to recognize more than just the historic situation. We have to recognize God's sovereign hand which is at work behind the scenes. You have to look through another lens as well. You have to see that verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. You need to understand that. But then you need to understand verse 2. The Lord gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. The first one didn't happen because of the power and the might of Babylon. It didn't happen because Nebuchadnezzar was all that. It happened because of chapter, verse 2, and it said the Lord gave. The Lord in all of His sovereignty, the Lord in all of His power, the Lord in all of His might, with all the mysteries of the wisdom and the unfathomable nature of who God is, said this, Nebuchadnezzar, I'm going to allow you to go into Jerusalem and do these things. I'm going to allow you to do that. I'm going to give it into your hands. So what you really see behind the scenes is you see this sovereign hand at work by our God. And you see His incredible faithfulness 
in the midst of his sovereignty. And when you hear me say the word faithfulness, you're going to run directly to his mercy and go, oh, isn't God so faithful in his mercy and his grace and his goodness to us? But the first thing you see about this great God in his faithfulness is he's faithful first to his justice. Chapter 1 of Daniel, verse 2 of chapter 1, is the working out of the promises of God. From Isaiah 39 and Leviticus 26 and of Deuteronomy 28, which says this, if you do not obey me and follow me, you will be destroyed. Judgment will come on you. And Isaiah in chapter 39 said, then Isaiah said to Hezekiah the king, hear the word of the Lord of hosts, behold the days are coming when all that is in your house and all which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Isn't it interesting that chapter 1 is a fulfillment of the faithfulness of the justice of God? And so we see that God is faithful in his justice, but he is also faithful in his mercy. That we can see in verse 9, those same words in verse 17, and the Lord gave. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And as for these four youths, verse 17, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all the visions and dreams. And Daniel, verse 21, was there until the first year of the king, Cyrus. He outlasted them all because of the faithfulness of God and His justice and His mercy. We gain great strength and confidence when we see that the hand of the Lord in every event that is taking place within our lives, there is nothing that is happening to us or around us that cannot begin with the words the Lord gave. I have no understanding and idea of why the events of 9-11 unfolded in the manner in which they did 15 years ago. But I do know this. It couldn't have happened without the Lord's allowance. It couldn't have happened without the sovereignty and the care and the provision of God. Yesterday, a good friends of ours buried their only son and only child. And they are asking the question, why? Why did our son become an addict? Why did our son not get clean and sober like so many other children who just act the fool as teenagers? How come our son's dead? How come we now no longer have a name that's going to be passed on to another generation? How come? Why? And the only answer that I could possibly give them as I sat with them in the ICU last week was to say this, I don't know. But I do know this. God is still in control. And the only hope that we have that your son didn't die just by fate or by circumstance or by chance itself is that there is a sovereign God who said nothing can come to you unless I say I give. Both good and bad. Both justice and mercy both tears and joy. There is no hope 
outside an understanding of the news of the day that begins with seeing God behind all of history and of saying to the infertile one who is here, I don't know why, but God does and he can be trusted. Or the one who has lost a loved one, the one who's wrestling with cancer, the one who desperately wants to see things happen and yet they're not, we can still press back and we can regale the events of the day. You can read the crawl at the bottom of CNN and say, this has happened to me and this has happened to me and this is happening to me and all of these things. We're really good at that. We're really good at that. But are we good at being able to see behind it a God who says, I am perfectly in control. And you may not ever understand why this is happening, but you can trust me that Joseph's brothers meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That God sent His one and only Son into the world and that those men in the world meant it for evil to destroy Him, but God's plan was for good, for Him to be destroyed and raised from the dead. There's a power in it. So the first way that we begin to understand how to sing the songs of the Lord within a foreign land is we see the work of God in every situation. It doesn't mean we don't cry or weep or hurt. It means, though, that when you press down to the very bottom, at least there's a God there and not an empty philosophy. At least there's a God who says, I understand suffering for my son suffered. And so I can relate to you. The next thing that we do is we resist our culture's scheme of reprogramming. We resist our culture's scheme of reprogramming. What I mean by this, Nebuchadnezzar was brilliant. His plans were brilliant in how he came to destroy all of his enemies and to establish one of the greatest empires that was ever established in all of the history of the world. He used a strategy that's still being used today by other kingdoms, not Babylon per se, but culture. Cultures that stand against the culture and the belief of God. So let's look at some of those reprogramming components that we see today. The first would be isolation. God took Daniel and all of the young people and he isolated them. He moved them away from their families, away from their places, away from everything that they knew and understood. He moved them to a place of total isolation where they would be surrounded by people who didn't hold those same beliefs. Isn't it interesting in a day that I, go, I almost don't go through a week when someone doesn't ask me via email, text, or I read it somewhere else that says this, Bill, is it really all that important for me to be a part of a church? I mean, can't I love Jesus on my own? Why do I need to be a member of a church? Why do I need to come every week and get up in the morning and get dressed up and hang out with all these people and then go home and live life? Why do I need to do that? The reason we need to do that is it's still a scheme uh, of our enemies to try to isolate us and have us live individual lives that sit on our couches and in our beds with our little laptops up looking at a preacher on the screen and thinking that somehow we've joined in the communion of the saints that morning. that we haven't understood that God wants to isolate us. And so many of you live incredibly busy lives and you're around the people all the time and you're absolutely isolated. No one knows you. No one knows anything about your marriage. 
No one knows anything about your private thoughts and your private lives. No one knows you, and you know no one. The reprogramming's begun of isolation. And then there's confusion, the second idea. The confusion begins in verse 7 when it says this, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. It seems innocuous enough. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. No big deal, right? It's just a name until you recognize this. Daniel, God is my judge. Elohim, El, is my judge. Hananiah, the Lord, Yahweh, is gracious. Mishael, who is what God is? Azariah, the Lord is my helper. Every day of these boys' lives leading up to the moment that they were taken into captivity and their parents were most likely brutally murdered, that their sisters were most likely brutally raped and destroyed, that these boys woke up and they would hear every single morning, Daniel, God is my judge. Daniel, go to school. Daniel, do the laundry. Daniel, go and take out the, the garbage. Daniel, God is my judge. Hananiah, Hananiah, remember your name. The Lord is gracious. Mishael, ah, who is a God like our God? Who is what God is? Azariah, never forget Azariah, never forget your name. The Lord is your helper. Isn't it fascinating that Nebuchadnezzar changed their names so that they wouldn't be reminded every day of the depth of who they really were and of the truth of who God really is. And to Daniel, he became Belteshazzar. May Baal, the pagan god, protect your life. Shadrach, the command of Aku, the pagan god. Meshach, who is what Aku is? Abednego, servant of Nebo. Marduk, Marduk, Bel. Aku, the moon god. Nebu, Nebo, the god of wisdom. They were coming and trying to confuse the young men. Forgetting who they are. Forgetting whose they are. But isn't it interesting that Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, they called themselves by their true names. They reminded themselves, God is your judge. God is your provider. Who is a God like our God? Remember who you are. Part of the components of our culture's strategy is to isolate you and to confuse you about your identity of who you are and who God is and to tell you that God has forgotten you and that he's not your provider and that the only provider you have is this culture and this country and what we have here. And the Lord of the universe is screaming, remember your name, that you're a Christian and you bear the name of Christ and you are purchased with a price on your head isolation confusion indoctrination we've got to move quickly indoctrination that they were instructed in all the myths and legends of babylon so that they would take the place of the scriptures as a source of their wisdom and their worldview 
that they were indoctrinating them to see that there's no way that you can believe. What a simpleton to believe that there's a God who created all things by simply speaking. Don't you realize that science is proving that evolution is the only way to go? And that you Christians in your thought process believe that there's a Creator God. That you believe that there truly is a good and an evil. That man and woman have distinct natures within this world. That there is a truth that supersedes all other things with a capital T. Don't you understand that none of that's true? And they indoctrinate us. And indoctrinate all that we believe. That we could look and that the myths and the legends of America and the myths and the legends of the Enlightenment will take the place of the truth of scriptures within the lives of individuals. And then they try to lead us finally to compromise. That you see Daniel and the boys and others were royally supplied at the king's table and so that they would become accustomed to a life of dependence upon a new master and that they would compromise what they believed. And they would compromise all these things but what you find with Daniel and what you find with Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah is they resisted this programming. They resisted it fully so that they uh, could stand within this system. Notice they didn't challenge the system of Babylon. They lived within the system but they did it distinctively as believers within that system. And they reminded themselves regularly of their true name. You know why you come to church every week? And why you should? Yes, it is to worship God, but it is also to be reminded of who you are. Because you've had six days of people telling you that that's not true. Six days of telling you that you're a failure. Six days of telling you that you're a moral mess. Six days of saying you're a terrible husband, a terrible wife, a terrible kid, a terrible student, all of this, that you're dumb, that you're simple, that you're all of these things, and you need to come back to church every single week to hear at least from one voice that says this, you are a child of the King, that you are purchased, and that you are loved, and that you're beloved, and that you are more powerful than any other creature in this world, and Satan is so terrified of you that he pre preaches his lies to you every week to try in some way to emasculate you and to neuter you and to have you stand on the sidelines and say nothing. You need to be reminded of that. If for no other reason for coming to church, maybe you don't like me, you don't like gray, you don't like song, I don't know why you wouldn't come. Come at least for this. Just to hear a reminder of a name that you're Christ. And you're the child of the king. And then to be reminded of this. That God is for you. And not against you. And that he will provide everything that you need. And Daniel in this coming and, and reprogramming and trying to resist it said this. King I'm not going to let you provide for me. I'm going to let my king provide for me. And I'm going on a vegan vegetarian diet and I'm going to get fat. By the way, vegans and vegetarians don't get fat. Honestly. And so what he was saying was this. Give me 10 days to prove a point to you. Give me 10 days to resist and to show you this. My God will provide for me and I don't have to buy into the culture's way of providing. I do not have to drink. I do not have to have sex. I do not have to have extramarital affairs. I do not have to cheat on my taxes. I do not have to do this. I do not have to do that. I can actually follow the Lord and allow Him to provide for me and you, culture, are going to be stunned by it. Because somehow, I'm actually happier being faithful to my wife. 
somehow it's a better life through high school to stand for Christ. Somehow, I'm not missing out on anything. It was as if Daniel and the boys said to the king, and it's tempting by the way, I imagine that was some pretty good wine. And I imagine it was some pretty good food. And I imagine as they looked around at the starvation of the world and they saw how honored a position they were in, it was tempting, but they said this, we are not going to compromise. And we're going to stand. And so they resisted the culture's programming, reminding themselves of their true identities in Christ, reminding themselves of God's provision for them. And then they made a resolution They made a resolution and they said this, we are not going to compromise. Folks, we live in a world where people are terrified to stand for anything. Because I promise you this, when you stand for something, targets show up all over your body. But when you blend in, no one can see you and know you. Sitting here looking at John and Nikki, they're going to stick out in northern Boston of saying we have a different foundation and it's not based on Harvard and it's not based on MIT and it's not based on the greatest minds and the greatest universities and the greatest country in all the world that are right there. We're placing our life and all that we believe in raising our five children, we're doing it in such a different way that we resolve to do this. Guess what? It's going to be hard. Would you all agree that making a resolution to live for Christ is difficult? Anybody agree with that? I say that And I bring that out because I think there's other folks here who need to hear that. And if you're investigating the Christian faith, I want you to hear this. It's hard to stand for Christ at times. And there are plenty of young men and young women in the history of the church of Jesus Christ who didn't make it out of the fiery furnaces. They were ripped to shreds by lions. They were devastated and they were destroyed for making a resolution to stand for Christ. But just like these young men, they could say, even if I'm not delivered today, I still know that my God will deliver me. But they resolved. Adults, our young people need to see the resolution that we have to live for Christ. They do. Because the strategy, and I don't have time, the strategy that Nebuchadnezzar used was a brilliant strategy. You know what he, who he didn't care about? He didn't care about people with no hair or gray hair. Because you're going to be gone in a generation. You're going to die. You know who he cared about? You know how he knew that he could change an entire culture? Start with the teenagers. Start with the children. Start indoctrinating them. Start isolating them. Start confusing them. Start getting them to change. And guess what? Everything will change. Guess what happened in the Enlightenment? Guess what happened in the movements in the early part of the last century within American evangelicalism and within the seminaries? They went and they changed. You know what changed first? Harvard changed. Yale changed. Princeton changed. Godly schools changed. Seminaries changed. All of those changed because they knew this. If we can get the minds of the young people, then we've got the culture. And you know what our young people are are benefiting from? The benefit of decades of us, my age and above, who've bought into the lie and been reprogrammed 
to say, you know, it doesn't really matter if Adam and Eve were really historic figures. It doesn't matter if this is really Scripture or not. It doesn't really matter if Christ was a true historic figure or not. And we wonder why our children are so confused. We wonder why our young people are wondering if they can stand for truth because they looked at the generations ahead of them and said, you guys didn't, why should we? So we resolve. And then into the end, here's this. How many of you guys have made a resolution before and failed? I can't really see well. A few of you. Me too. So why should I resolve today to be like Daniel? Why should I resolve today to do that? How am I going to do that? How is this not just going to be another resolution? And the answer is this, so short and brief. You have to see that there's a greater Daniel at play here. There's a greater Daniel. There's a Daniel who went into a fiery furnace and he was ultimately consumed by the fiery wrath of God the Father. And no one was in there with him. And he didn't know that there's a greater Daniel who went into a lion's den and those lions representing the very judgment of God, their mouths weren't shut, but they tore him to pieces. That there was a Daniel who perfectly resolved and perfectly lived and perfectly was destroyed and now perfectly is raised again from the dead to say to the rest of us Daniels out there, you're going to mess up. But I've taken care of all of your mess ups. Still resolve, still try, still fight the good fight, still do everything within your power to live for Christ, but know this, when you fail and you will, I'm still there for you. I'm still there with you. And I'm one day going to come back and take you home. And it's going to be all right. That's the good news, isn't it? Because here's what I know about resolutions that can never be fully fulfilled. I hate making them and I don't. Because why make a resolution if I know I'm going to fail? Christ is saying this. God is calling you. Resolve today. And not by your own strength, but by the strength of the true and greater Daniel. And when you see these things and know these things, it gives you reasons to sing the Lord's song in a foreign land. Let's pray.